Hey, everybody, this is Charlie Palmer, an artist of the world, I suppose. And you are listening to Studio Noise. Yes, yes, it's the noise. You know, whenever you hear that noise, the sound of creation, you look around, I guarantee you see some black folks around the sounds, making prints, making photos, making quilts, making noise, baby. Making that noise, the noise, the noise. That's what we love right here on the Studio Noise Podcast. Sponsored by NBAF, National Black Arts. Go check them out at nbaf.org. Uh, much appreciating all the support they give you and bringing to you these art conversations. You know what I'm saying? Where we archive, and I mean, that's what we do right here. We archive the voices of the contemporary black artists right now that's doing it, that's making that work, that's getting it done. You know what I'm saying? So if you're looking for a little inspiration, it's right here. Right here on the noise. <laughs> you know, you don't have to look that far. And so this week, you know what I'm saying? We've got another great interview for you. Uh, first thing first, I want to tell you about this one. Uh, one of our Studio Noise fam, Miss Delita Martin, is doing her thing. She's been doing her thing for a long time. She's big timing it right now. Might try to get her back on the podcast. She might be too big. She might not come back, yo. I hope not. Holla at your boy. <laughs> I at your boy, Delita. But, yo, she's doing some great things out here. So uh, if you remember way back episode 36 when we had Delita Martin on the show, we were talking, she was talking about the the need that she felt to give back to people and create like foundations and, and residencies. And that's what she did. So she created and you can find Delita Martin at Black Box Press on IG. So she made the Black Box Press Foundation. You know what I'm saying? And she just kicked it off and she's offering a five thousand dollar grant to people. And that's the art as activism grant. It's a eligibility is nationals five thousand dollars. All mediums invited. Uh, entry fee is $25. The deadline for it is February 1st, 2021. So you got a lot of time to prepare on this one. You can hit info at blackboxpressfoundation.org. And here we go. I'm going to read you right here off the website at blackboxpressstudio.com. The Black Box Press Foundation mission is to support artists in the production of an exhibition that brings together the creative energy of the arts to move us emotionally with strategic planning of activism necessary to bring about social change that's that sounds just like delita so if you check out the website you know what i'm saying she got a, a board and everything so she's going to be offering residencies she's going to be offering grants you know that's the type of thing that we talking about right that's the type of thing that happens when you're community-minded and you focus and you well and you just a great person too and you're super successful like <laughs> she is it gives you the option to do that but not everybody chooses to give back, but she is, yo. She giving back. She's starting this foundation. So make sure y'all look it up. Take advantage of these opportunities, man. It's exactly the type of stuff. Like when I'm shaking off this grad school rut and all that kind of stuff. This is what I want to do with the podcast too, yo. I'll create these opportunities and do stuff. Expand what we do when I got a little bit more time to focus. So so this one is a definitely an inspiration to your boy. As always, we support the fam at all times. So Delita Martin is definitely that. So Make sure y'all check it out. You'll take advantage of this. It's, it's a good time. So this episode, we're talking to my man, Stephen Hamilton, with his Founders Project, this great mixed media work that he's been doing. Uh, he went and he studied, he learned all these traditional aspects of making art, these African traditional aspects of making art, and he's bringing it all together right now, telling stories, bringing in the, the youths to pose for him and go through these all histories. It's fantastic stuff, yo. I, I loved it when from the first time I saw it and it was great talking to him. I think y'all really gonna like this one. So right after the break, we're coming back at you with Stephen Hamilton right here on The Noise. The Noise, The Noise. It's your boy Jay Barber back with more studio noise. This time I went all, all the way up to Boston. 
had to highlight my man, the man doing it all right now, Mr. Stephen Hamilton on Studio Noise. Welcome to the podcast, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. For sure, man. I, I've been a, a fan of your work. It's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you're always looking for artists that are doing something interesting, something fun. And so I'm always on the search for that. So I came across your work. Uh, I think I came actually across your studies that you were doing for your larger work. And then I saw the larger work and it's like, oh, this guy's official. <laughs> like, like, yeah, <laughs> this, this guy is, is on it. So that's Stephen Hamilton. You can find him at at the art of Stephen Hamilton on Instagram. Um, the the itime project dot com. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, it's um it's uh uh Eton is a, a word. So Eton Project um uh, dot com um is the is the website and that also has descriptions of some of the later projects, um more of the projects. I have I haven't updated the site in a while because I've been working on a large like overarching project um for most of 2019 and 2020. So like I'm probably not going to update until like that's a little bit more that's come to fruition a little bit more. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's the, that's the website. Oh yeah. And that's, that's always the struggle with artists, right? We never want to <laughs> yeah. stop working long enough to do <laughs> all this other stuff, yeah. you know, making yeah. the website and taking pictures, all that good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you have the founders project, man. And so and this was the, the one that I've saw recently. I think it's incredible. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah. So the project, as you describe it, the project reimagines Boston public school, public school, high school students as the legendary founders of the West and West Central African ethnic groups. Now, that just a sentence right there to drop on your head. Y'all got to marinate on that for a little while. But <laughs> but tell us, man, well, like, where did this project start and how did you kind of get to this idea? So um the project, I had the idea of doing, I wanted to do a large public art project for a long time. I had a dream project of doing this sort of like massive um, indoor mural installation that was like talking about the history of the African diaspora. Like I, I had like this idea of doing like this big, if like somebody gave me a massive interior space, like doing a project like that. And um, I was inspired by, I have a very complicated relationship in terms of like my my um, admiration and also sort of repulsion from the work of like John Singer Sargent. Mm. Like I, I think there's elements of works that are very beautiful and elements of his work and his practice that are like terribly problematic. Um, but um, in Boston, we have uh, the Sargent murals at the um, Boston Public Library and the Triumph of Origin has like frieze of the patriarchs that's there. And it's like um, the frieze of like um, the patriarchs and the Hebrew Bible. And um, I thought that that was such a beautiful like image of like all of these um, like uh, prophets um, in the Hebrew Bible. And I, I remember like loving that format, like the epic nature of that format um, uh, since I was like 17 and like my ideas for like these projects like kept on evolving like in terms of you know you have these dream projects that you think about for, for a long time yeah um, I had the opportunity to live in Nigeria um, due to a grant that I got from Arts Connect International between 2015 and 2016 and my understanding of like African art and um, African art forms like expanded from learning traditional weaving dyeing wood carving you know, being in spaces with traditional artists and also contemporary artists. Um, and then in 2018, I, um, I was nominated to be part of the uh, Now and There Public Art Accelerator. And um, what they did is they provided not only, um, not only resources and tutelage and workshops, but also funding um, for artists who want to do public art projects in the city. So I use this as an opportunity to sort of, to like, I really like think about how I could workshop this idea for um, this uh, public art installation, even though this installation would be temporary. So, um, you know, I had my experiences working, um, doing like um, work, my, my experiences as an educator, because um, I worked for a nonprofit called Art called um, Artist for Humanity. Um, and then I also, like, when I got back from Nigeria, I got another grant from the New England Foundation for the Arts to do um, a, a textile installation. So I was, like, teaching um, black and brown students from Boston 
um, these uh, traditional art forms that I learned when I was in Nigeria. So I was like, I want to do something which is going to engage the community and also educate people about these important um, elements of African history, especially as they relate to us in the diaspora. And I also want to highlight these traditional art forms that I learned when I was in Nigeria. So, you know, um, with the funding that I received from that, um, I was able to hire back um, some of the students that I had worked with from um, Stitched into Memory. And I, I decided to do these like large scale painting installations that were incorporating traditional weaving, dyeing and wood carving. And because it was such a like massive undertaking, you know, I was using textiles that I made in collaboration with weavers and dyers when I was living in Nigeria, textiles that I was making myself and also textiles um, that were being made by my studio assistants who I had taught traditional weaving to um, when I was, um, you know, that trout traditional weaving and dying to when I came back to the United States. So like, I, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this like large installation that's incorporating these traditional art forms. Um, and then I'm also going to, the, the focus of these, um, these images are going to be Boston public school, high school students. Because it's like, I want to represent high school students. I also want to like, like have a little bit of like commentary that like, you know, we don't often think about this, but most of our ancestors, when they were taken um, in bondage, they were, you know, early 20s, late teens. They were teenagers in early 20s. Yeah, they were. Yeah. So, um, and then even at the beginning of me, most of these stories, when these, you know, legendary progenitors, I, I don't, I'm reluctant to say kings and queens because not all of them were, were rulers in that way. But um, they were they were also young people. So one of the figures, Yanenga, was 14 when she led her father's armies into battle. So there's like this idea about like um, youth and like how we think about young people um, that I I also want to reconsider. So, you know, in addition to, you know, the, the studio practice of like everything being sort of like made from hand. So like all the yarns were hand dyed using natural dyes. They were all hand woven. Like I did all of the carving and all of the painting myself. Um, but in addition to doing that, I was I was also um, uh, having these small focus groups with Boston Public School high school students and asking them questions um, about like things that they had learned about Africa in school, which most of the time was not a lot of things. <laughs> um, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, things that they want to learn about Africa, and most importantly, like how um, they would like to be represented. So if you think about like how you think about yourself and how you want other people to see you, how would you want other people to see you? Um, so, you know, I recorded those um, conversations, took notes on those conversations, and um, I was able to um, use that to create this like um, this project um, all throughout 2018, um, and you know it was an awesome experience to get to know some of these students. A lot of these high school students I are working with are artists themselves, so I still follow. They're nice. still making amazing and beautiful artwork. A lot of them are in college now. Nice, um, you know. And uh, I also had built a relationship with the students that I was working with. I worked with. Um, five students as studio assistants and then one other student who I had hired was not one of my students that I worked with as a high school student, but he is a weaver actually from Indonesia that I had hired to do um, some of the weaving using the darns, the yarns that we had dyed. He had, he had done weaving for one of the pieces, but um, I was able to like really solidify more of these relationships that I built with these studio assistants because I had taught them these art forms and we were in a studio space where I was weaving and dying and continuing to like expand their knowledge of those things. So, um, you know, the production of the work and all the fabrication was like very like intense work. Um, a lot of the labor I did end up having to do myself because of just like the scope of it and the very limited um, uh, pool of um, people who I would would have trusted to help me doing the work, do the work anyway. Right. But it was it was a it was an experience where I learned a lot and I sort of solidified a lot of practices that I've brought into this like next body of work that I'm working on now. So like thinking about collaboration, um, thinking about like how models have agency in the work, thinking about collaborating with other artists, um, 
my cousin, who's a photographer, who did all of the, helped me do all of the uh, reference uh, photography for the paintings that I was doing. Um, she, uh, we also collaborated more intentionally together for a project in 2020, where we were photographing people around um, Boston Black um, people from our community and like sort of also thinking about like how we're drawing connections between, you know, African um, uh, iconography and African art history and like the photographs while also including like textile work that I had been doing over the course of 2018 and 2019. Um, so, you know, it was, it was an amazing experience. And I think, you know, some of it's like resurfacing now because like um, the, uh, the companion resource, I originally wanted to do a full syllabus and the syllabus was going to be like its own book. It was going to be this mm, yeah. big book of like resources and, you know, it was going to be all like illustrated by me. It was going to be like almost a walkthrough of the history of pre-colonial Africa from AD like uh, 750 up until like um, the, you know, 18th century. It was going to be all this, this whole thing. And I was like, that is like a 10 year project. So what I ended up <laughs> was I ended up creating an, a free online resource that has the images and the narratives of each of these found, legendary founders, um, nine of these legendary founders that I included in the Founders Project along with the academic resources that I used um, when I was designing the project. I was also doing a lot of academic research into like these narratives and these histories and the art history of each of those, um, of each of these different regions. So all of that, um, all of that contributed to, uh, you know, the work that was up in the Bruce, the Brucey Bowling, Bowling Building, um, which is the uh, BPS Municipal Building in Boston. Um, so that's, that's the founders project sort of in its entirety. And I, I, there's still like more I want to do with that. There were unfortunately like photographs that we took of students that I didn't end up using for the final paintings, not for any other reason that I, that I didn't have time to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's always the time, right? Yeah. It's always the, the thing. So there's, there's still like a lot more, um, that I want to, to do to like explore like all of these different things. Yeah. Well, let me go through and, um, and ask you a, a few questions to get you to expand and give people like a real context of, of the scope of the project. Cause one, they can find the companion book on your website that we mentioned before. Um, mm -hmm. make sure they, they, if y'all listening, please check it out and they'll give you like a guide to uh, yeah. this conversation. Um, yeah. And I just want to mention that your the cousin that helped you, her name is Stacy Hamilton, right? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Definitely want to shout out Stacy uh, yeah. for all the work that she did. Stacey, <laughs> photography. Photography is her, at Stacy H. Photography is her um, Instagram. She's an incredibly talented um, photographer. Um, for sure. We've collaborated over the past, like, two years. Very similar. Um like uh, aesthetics, but also just like in terms of our own practice as artists, like her work very much centers um, images and voices of black women. Um, and um, she's been doing some really beautiful work over the past two years. So for sure, for sure. We definitely, definitely much love appreciating her for, for doing that work. And so give me an idea of before you went over and learned kind of all these natural, traditional, uh, should I say, pro processes, um, in terms of weaving and carving, what what was your work looking like before that? So um, my background was in illustration. So um, what I was doing is I was I've been interested in the history of pre-colonial Africa for a long time. I was interested in these narratives back when I was like in middle school. This was something that I've I've always been really fascinated um, with. Um, and you know my background, um, my illustration background, sort of informed like this narrative quality of this work um and then also research was also a, like very important part of um the work that i was doing so a lot of reading a lot of like looking um at images a lot of collecting images but i think um what sort of what sort of evolved and um developed like um from like actually going to africa and living there was like really having an in-depth understanding of the aesthetics of mm -hmm. a lot of the cultures that I, I was um, referencing, but also, you know, my understanding of, you know, 
these art forms change. So like, there's a difference between, okay, my character is going to wear this clothing as opposed to understand the function that that clothing has. Right. A ritual or um, ceremonial or even just like a basic societal context, even if it's just everyday clothing. And there's also your understanding of it changes when you understand how it is made. So like literally understanding like, okay, this is a cloth that is made out of hand-spun cotton that's dyed with indigo. There's a specific way that that is going to feel on the skin. There's a specific texture and weight that that cloth is going to have, you know, in terms of like the patterns, like this is how this is made. So this needs to look like this is a brocaded pattern on here. You know, this has to look like this is like, um, a batik pattern or this has to look like it's a tie and dye pattern or this has to look like it's you know embroidered like how am i um showing you know the um you know sort of like the character of that cloth um and then also because like the work that i'm doing now is painted on textiles it has like a different um it has a different uh it, it adds a lot to the aesthetic because it's not like I'm just using the textile as a canvas. The textile itself is a piece of artwork. Right. Textile itself is an artistic object. So um, what ends up happening is it's merging with the painting in a, in a way um, that's interesting, which is also sort of commentary on like how we think about um, textiles as an art form, because uh, you know, the painting part is like an important part of the, the work. But the creation of the textile is the more labor-intensive part of it. So if I think about some of the pieces that I've worked on lately, um, you know, the, the, each of the yarns was dyed. Like, I'm dyeing the yarn, I'm setting the loom, I'm weaving. You know, I'm also using other uh, textiles that are piece-dyed or resist-dyed. You know, there's this very long, like, um, uh, uh, this very long process that's an accumulative process, you know, because sometimes it may take up to a year for, you know, just that textile to exist because like, as I'm working, I'm continuing to dye yarns and cloth and sew and do all of these different things. So, right. Right. Yeah. You know, it's also talking about like, okay, this art form exists as a traditional art form. This is an art form, which is a manifestation, manifestation of black labor. Um, and this is being juxtaposed with this painting um, which is borrowing from a Western tradition. So they're both sort of being almost creolized in a sense um, in the in the final work. Yeah, and I think you what you're saying highlights uh, the big difference between cultural understanding and cultural imitation. And I yeah. think that's, um, you see it a lot now, fashion industry just kind of rip these patterns from like, yeah. these African cultures and put it on a bag or put it on, like socks yeah. or like whatever it is just because the aesthetic, but those patterns have meaning, right? Yeah. Those patterns have a context. And I think you taking the time to, to, to give it uh, reverence to the fact that it does have its own understanding that is justified in and of itself. Like it doesn't need to be justified in a, in a Western canon or Western context. Like the canon already exists for the methods of, of creation that they use, like the methods of abstraction in particular. I, I always think about um, the way people paint, you know what I'm saying? The way people make art, how they express their forms doesn't need to be justified in a Western context or in Western academia right. for it to be like, uh, you know, fully fleshed. <laughs> you doing, yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, exactly. 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 Yeah. So I definitely appreciate that. And so when you look at these pieces, um, you mentioned what Yaninga is that her name? Is that how you pronounce it? I'm, uh, excuse my pronunciation for some, some of these stuff. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm not mussy, so um, I, I <laughs> I'm probably mispronouncing her name as well. Um, it's uh, Yaninga, okay, which is also like it's very interesting history because Yaninga is um, the mother of the Mossi people or credited as the mother of the Mossi um, Empire, but she herself was um, Dangbani or from Dagbo which is in Northern Ghana. Hmm. So she, there's, there's a very interesting, like uh, uh, one of the things that's interesting about the Founders Project is it also speaks to how cosmopolitan pre-colonial Africa was in certain senses. So, 
you know, there's these very complex interactions between all of these different African ethnic groups. So um, a lot of like different um, civilizations, a lot of different states um, in that region of like um, Africa, like Northern Ghana, um, uh, Burkina Faso, um, they trace their, um, their lineage to Madega, who was a Yeninga's father. So Yeninga's sons and daughters are often credited as like the founders of like these different kingdoms in Northern Ghana and other parts of, um, and other parts of like that region of Africa. But um, uh, Madega was the king of Dagbon. He was a, a Dagbon king, um, which is um, a, a civilization in Northern Ghana. It was a, a state in Northern Ghana. So um, she was um, his uh, daughter um, and uh, she was a general in his army. And um, the conflict sort of arose because she wanted to, she wanted to start her own family. She wanted to get married and start her own family and he wouldn't let her. So um, the story is that she, depending on who's telling the story, like um, it's like a field of grain or a field of okra that she grew and allowed to rot in the field. Mm. And uh, she was using that as a metaphor for like, this is how I feel. I feel like I'm reaching my prime and I'm just being allowed to wither away. Um, but he still wouldn't let her leave. So she disguised herself as um, a man and fled off um, away from um, away from the royal village. And she met with an elephant hunter and also a prince, like a young prince um, named uh, Riale. And, um, you know, they met as friends, but then she revealed herself as a woman and they got married um, and had um, uh, a son, uh, Wedrago, who was the... Um, who was the first Moronaba of the, of the Mossi Empire. So her son became the first king of the Mossi Empire. Um, so the story is really interesting um, because like you have like this like sort of female founder of um, a kingdom, but also like what, what I thought was fascinating is like this idea of choice. Mm, yeah. So a lot of the, the expectation is, is typically if we're, we're looking at a lot of examples you know, she is sort of bucking this, like, quote unquote, um, uh, she's bucking this sort of, sort of like this, uh, this, this trope that we would see of like, okay, like this pressure to, um, this pressure to follow like these very specific um, female coded roles as like a wife and a mother. Right. And she's a warrior, which is acceptable but this society won't accept her being both. Mm. So like this, this like sort of rebellion that she has against her father who's not allowing her to like sort of exist in both of these realms, which is really fascinating, but also, you know, um, she, she leaves and she like sort of like charts her own path. Um, and it also is like interesting because like, this is a common theme in a lot of foundation myths where like the youngest child is the founder of a new dynasty because they're never going to be like, they're never going to be the, the king or the queen because like they're the youngest. Right. So there's also other tales in which Riale is the, the youngest in a, a, a line of princes. So, you know, there's a lot of layers to it. Also the fact that Riale is not Dagbon, but also like um, Malinke, which is like an enemy group. Well, not really an enemy group, but a rival group. Um, and that they're founding this dynasty um, there's all these other layers in history, like if we're looking at the Masi people, because Yenenga is a horseman. Um, she's like associated, uh, she's a horsewoman, she's associated with this like um, Calvary culture, which is like really important in West Africa during the Middle Ages. Um, and there's so much like rich symbolism that could be drawn from that. So when I was designing um, this piece, it was something that I was thinking about a lot. Um, because it's something really fascinating about her story and how she sort of, you know, um, is this complex, multidimensional character. Yeah. And I think you put all those pieces that you described. Uh, if you go check out the piece um, in the companion book, you can see the okra. You see the horse. You see her dressed as a warrior. Like all the stuff that you mentioned is in there. And I think that's what uh, a great thing about what narrative artwork can do. Like just tell this full story in one simple presentation of it you know and you and part of it is also you have um one of the great parts about this series is because of the so much work that you put into it it has a texture to it and a richness um 
that you really can't replace, right? Because uh, all the work in, in, for instance, having and dyeing the, the different yarns to make this fabric, uh, it pays off because it makes it more unique. Like if it's almost like, why would you take such a rich fabric and paint on it? You know what I'm saying? Like it, it feels <laughs> like it feels like extravagant and in, and in, in a, in a little part of it. And then you have like the carved wood pieces that are hanging from it. It's, so it just look like it fits on a rod and then it hangs. Is that what it, that's what it is? So what I wanted to do is I wanted to borrow from some like really um, well-known iconography and musty art. So the musty are also known for these very tall masks. I and mean, it's also interesting because this masking tradition is oftentimes associated with, you know, because like the, many of these groups are part of like these sort of multi-ethnic societies and these this history of migrations, like um, that's oftentimes associated with the indigenous people of the, the Masi empire. And Yanenga and the ruling family are like the, this, this group of, of horsemen warriors that sort of ride in from Northern Ghana um in the south so like they um this like coalescence of these two people sort of creates this this kingdom where there's like all these very complicated you know methods of exchange when it comes to like power and authority mm -hmm. um shared between this group of people but um they're known for these very tall towering beautifully carved masks so what i did is i created um these frames which are borrowing from the uh symbolism and the iconography of these masks so um each of the um each of the frames like is borrowing from that iconography so some of the frames are borrowing from door architecture some of them are borrowing from like calabashes some of them are borrowing from um other forms of sculpture that are prominent um, in the region, so uh, some of them were taken from jewelry. So some of the um, the frames are actually um, embossed in punched metal to right, reference yeah, yeah. Uh, jewelry traditions. Um, so I wanted to like think about ways to incorporate those sculpture elements because that was something that I also wanted to 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 use and create too. And it sort of makes this window that exists. So that frame is sort of like creating this almost like portal effect. Um, that I, I really wanted to um, have in the installations. And, and that's really beautiful, too. So t tell me what the process was in in learning kind of these traditional carving techniques. So um, I when I was living in um, Nigeria, my teacher was uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Kunle, Mr. Kunle Adewumi, um, and I learned in Oshobo, but um, Mr. Kunle is from Osi, um, and Osi is a town in Yoruba land where the legendary carvers are from. So Osi uh, Ilori is um, a lot of um, carvers are from in and around that area. So the lineage of um, uh, Ariogun, uh, the lineages of like, um, you know, uh, the um, Fakeye family, who's also like sort of related to um, Areogun, if you follow like any of the Fakeyes, so there's a uh, Lamidi Fakeye, who's a, like a, a, a famous carver. Um, there's um, uh, Akim Fakeye, like there's a whole family, Lukman uh, Fakeye, there's like a whole family of um, carvers um, that's still very active now that do incredible work that's also associated with lineage, lineages from that region. Um, there's, uh, uh, the other legendary carver, um, Oloe of, um, Ishe, who is, um, who's from around that area. Um, so like, that's where his lineage is from. And like the style of carving, which he has is very much, um, reflective of that. And when we look at a lot of Yoruba artwork, like the, the tip, like when we like see Yoruba artwork, a lot of it is, um, reflective of that specific style from that area. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, he was kind enough to spend time teaching me carving. And I learned like basic panel carving when I was there. And I still have a long way to go. I, I, I still have a lot of practice that I, <laughs> that I have to do to make my hand at least halfway as clean as his. Um, but like there, um, you know, I was, I was studying with him. I studied with him um, collectively about three months. Wow. We worked on projects while I was with him. And then um, I also was uh, uh, working with my teacher, uh, learning weaving and dyeing, uh, Miss Agnes Umeche, uh, for another um, for another like four months when I was in Ogidi Jumu. 
So I was learning weaving from her. And then I was also, um, I spent a lot of time, I was very grateful for the time that I got to spend with uh, Chief uh, Nike Okundai because uh, with Chief Nike, um, you know, I would sit with her and I would have conversations with her and she would tell me all these things about like natural dyes and the history of textiles and just this library of information that she has because not only is she a weaver, she learned weaving from her um, great-grandmother, um, but other people in her family were dyers and artisans. Um, but she would also like, you know, one of the most fascinating things about her is she would go around to different marketplaces around Nigeria. She would go around different places and she would have conversations um, and speak with and get to know the work of all these local and traditional artisans, all these market women, um, male and female artisans. So she just collected sort of all of this knowledge from not only her own upbringing, but from from actively doing research like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting a chance to have conversations with her was also really helpful in um, developing my artistic practice. This is Catherine Weiss, artist, printmaker, community organizer, and you are listening to Studio Noise. There, like I created a body of work when I was there too, but that also something that really informed a lot of the work that I was doing, and also thinking about different types of gendered labor, um, because like uh, weaving and dyeing, the type of weaving that I learned, there's male weaving and female weaving um, in Nigeria, um, you know, male coded and female coded weaving, because there are men who weave on the women's loom and women who weave on the male loom. But like um, the type of weaving that I learned is a specifically female art form, especially in the region where I was. Um, and carving is identified as a very male art form, even though there are there are always exceptions and ways in which that those that that gendered labor is broken down. And also, other people will talk about it like the idea and how gender functions in a pre-colonial African society is also very different. Um, but it was also there was something really interesting about. Um, having both of those experiences, learning from, you know, um, a man who is um, a uh, professional and an artisan's part of this very male-coded art form, and then also lo- learning from a woman who's also like a master in this like woman-coded, female-coded art form, and then being able to have the experience of learning both, um, and sort of understanding how they sort of like how they sort of work um, together. And it's also really interesting to see that um, there was so much generosity in teaching me that from both of these both of these people who I have like tremendous respect and thanks for, for like sharing these things which are so dear to them. Um, yeah, you know, that, is, that is amazing. That, that has gotta be great, man. You always wanna, and you know, I'm a printmaker, so I'm always thinking about learning from the masters, you know, Curly Holt yeah. and then, you know, if I could go back in time and, and learn from Bob Blackburn and all these kind of people. So yeah. like having that that opportunity is amazing. So what you you turned them to be kind of these gendered um roles. Like what did they think about you crossing the genders in that way or even they do they even consider it to be still gendered traditions even now? So in the experience that I had it wasn't an issue. I think um when I was speaking with um uh, Mr. Kunle, you say anybody who wants to learn, who's willing to like, you know, learn these things, like I'm willing to teach them. So, and like from what I understand, there are some women I think that um, were learning like um, some forms of wood carving too. Um, you know, he said that he had had one sister like that learned that work. Sister by like you know, you have um, you know another like a female age age mate who's like learning who's learning that work with him. Um, and, you know, uh, for Miss Agnes, you know, like her, she's, um, she is in Europe, but she's, um, Iberia, which is another ethnic group that uses the same upright loom. But she says like, um, my oldest daughter knows how to weave. And then all of my children know how to at least set the loom. So all my sons also know how to at least set the loom. So there was no real issue with me learning these things. I also have to you also have to take into consideration that I, I learned these things when I was like in like I went there in two thousand 
2016. So that's different than somebody who had an experience trying to learn these things maybe in the 70s or 80s. I know, you know, men who were learning um, Adire and Indigo dying, like people were looking at them kind of weird um, right, because yeah. female coded art form. But like when I was there, I saw men who were like preparing like Indigo dye and like one of the most prominent um, artisans in um, the United States right now, Gasali Adiemo, is an Aladere in Indigo dye and he's a man. And he, I think he comes from a family of people who are, who are, who are also dyers. He has like family members who are um, dyers in Nigeria. So like, like how that is functioning is changing. And it also should be of note that there are always exceptions and complexity to that, mm-hmm. especially considering like, you know, these these ideas that we have about gender and gender roles, like they, they change over time. And even in traditional pre-colonial contexts, they were complicated. They weren't, they don't fit in how we think about them in, in the West. Um, so there are always like ways in which there are exceptions and, you know, um, complexities to that. So um, short answer, I didn't really experience that when I was there. Um, I think a lot of times people were happy to see people who are taking interest in traditions and traditional art forms. And also even in a pre-colonial context, like it's, it's, it's more complicated, right. um, especially conversations about gender because they're not, it's not, especially like before the coming of Europe, Europeans, it, it, um, you know, it wasn't interpreted the same way as it is now. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, that was, that was at least my experience when I was there. Yeah, that, that's that's very interesting. Uh, very interesting. So, in terms of materials um, that you use, like you basically, I don't want to say piece together, but kind of took all these different parts from all these different traditional methods and put them together. Was that like a conscious choice? Like, does does it have uh, any deeper meaning beyond just the materiality? So, um, for some of the pieces, it was it, there was a lot more symbolism than others so like for example the frame the the piece that i did there was a painting of um odudua who is the um uh founder of the yoruba people um the legendary progenitor of the yoruba people you know um yoruba people refer to themselves um often as ama odudua who's the um you know who descended uh, from heaven on the iron chain. There's so many different legends and stories associated with this figure. Um, I, I was trying to be very conscious in referencing Yoruba artwork and Yoruba doors. So um, there are 16 birds and 16 faces. So um, Oduduas had 16 sons. There are 16 major Odu and um, Ifa. So um, if I has 256 Odu, but like there's 16 major Odu, there's 16 first Irumole, um, the first deities to descend into the world. Um, and then also with the birds symbolizing the divine mothers, the Eleye, also having that, that number 16 to sort of relate to, um, you know, this, this uh, divinatory corpus and like this, like that, that, special reverence to that number um in Yoruba cosmology and then like um using um you know traditional dyes too so like the doors the frames for um the painting that i did of uh joseph uh, lewis as as enri is um painted based off of the entrance doorway to um men's compounds so for titled men in Igbo land because that was like the founder of the Nri Ibo. Um, there are these elaborately carved door panels. Um, and I borrowed that iconography from those door panels. Um, and a lot of the symbolism that I'm using are, sim- are important symbols in Ibo artwork. So the four lobed kola is like a very prominent um, symbol that's used in, in that piece. Or um, I'm trying to think about other, other examples of like very um, particular uh, material use. So um, for the image of uh, Rutha Yuso as um, the first Neem woman, uh, Neem is now, it's no longer practiced by the um, Ejigan people, but it was a women's secret society, which was the counterpart to the um, leopard society, which we know as Ekbe or Egbo or um, uh, Ngbe, which was, um, 
uh, a multi-ethnic secret society um, in southeastern Nigeria, the Ibibio, the Ejigam, um, the Aroibo um, speaking people, Anang people, um, they had these different lodges to um, the leopard, the leopard society. And they had a secret writing, which is called Insibidi, which we, we now, which we has become more popular now as people are researching um, African um, art and writing. And also because that influenced the, the writing that they used in Wakanda in the Black Panther movie, because mm. that is of the Panther cult. Um, that's a live. Um, that's the the writing of the um, uh, Panther Society. Um, but there's a, a counterpart to that um, leopard society amongst the Asian people, which is the um, the crocodile society, which um, is the realm of very powerful women. So um, that society um, was sort of like uh, this other uh, power female power society, which is associated with the crocodile and the snake and like these powerful water spirits. Um, and they also um, make use of a lot of the symbolism associated with Insibidi too. Um, so that was one of the reasons why like those metal frames are based off of like these metallic dishes that have like images and iconography associated with Neem and associated with the, um, the, uh, 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 the crocodile spirit and um, in Southeastern uh, Nigeria amongst the Asian people. So there's a lot of like, coded symbolism and like material um that's being used um with with that as well um in each of the pieces so like both the symbols and also like the materials like all of the um dyes that are being used so like um using a traditional pigment so cam wood um you know uh millet leaf um which is a prominent um that i use for like a wood stain uh ochre um uh white chalk like a lot of these different you know items that are typically used in um uh, uh wood carving and um traditional like pigments which are used in painting were also like very heavily incorporated into the work as well yeah and and it's absolutely beautiful man like it, like these pieces are are really stunning i really wish i could it was no COVID. I could see, I could see it in person. Yeah, <laughs> they'll say the travel, but yeah, but these, yeah, I mean, these, these are, are absolutely stunning. Um, because of, because of the layering and the symbols and the and the different techniques, but they all kind of have a format that ties them all together. And so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure they were incredibly striking seeing them like one after the other, like back to back to back to back to back. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And so what, what was the response to the students that you used? Like, what did they think about it? How did it kind of change their mind state? So um, a lot of them, they really enjoyed participating. I, I loved how they enjoyed participating. They enjoyed seeing themselves in the paintings. Um, I gifted everybody a print. It was so late because it took <laughs> me so long to get myself together after that. I sent out the prints like, Earlier this year, it was like two years later, than <laughs> the prints. But they they each got a print. Um, you know, they they what was awesome is that a lot of them they just enjoyed the experience of like, you know, getting their photos taken on um, in the clothing, mm. and that was something that always surprises me because that happened also with the last series that me and my me and Stacy collaborated on, um, the heirloom. Um, exhibition when we were taking these photos of people in our community people love wearing the clothes and you know like talking about like the histories and the aesthetics that we're um touching on and like why you know we're suggesting that for these photos and like you know people were very engaged in that process um and that was something that i thought that was really amazing that was something that i really am um i'm really grateful for that people responded so warmly to um, seeing the work, seeing themselves in the work. You know, one of the students that I did, um, <laughs> that I did paint, he was um, a senior in high school and he was actually um, an uh, intern. I was interning with him. Um, so he was interning with me. So he, um, I was like, you know, we were having conversations about things and I was teaching him like really basic, like studio stuff that I do um and he was one of the um one of the people that i painted and he was in the studio while i was painting him and he said that that is a little bit weird because it was like it's weird. <laughs> just like like there like that's a little bit odd seeing that but it was all like a really interesting um 
experience. And like, um, I've received a lot of positive feedback from them and from the community uh, for the work. Yeah, that's good, man. Uh, and, you know, is uh, we talk about it a lot on this podcast, but it's something about seeing yourself in artwork. Like, yeah. not, not just yourself in, in specifically seeing himself in the picture, but seeing yourself as in your history, your people, somebody that cares about you, somebody that is uplifted with your melanated skin, with your your same age and like all of it, like together. It means something to people. It resonates across uh, across age and, and region and everything. It does. That is very true. And so what do you th- what do you think it is um, that interested you in the beginning in the kind of African history of it? Like when you, when you talk about addressing the, the lack of pre-colonial African narratives, what is it about that that you think resonates with black Americans? I think that there is um, a sort of mythology that we, and we, we, our parents even tell us this. It's really interesting because like the story is like, you know, slavery happened and we were completely cut off from any like um, cultural connection that we had with Africa and that we had to build a completely new culture from scratch. So that's like the, that's the, the thing. That narrative is sort of fed to us in different ways. There's different ways in which that violence is fed to us. So one is the very overtly violent way, which is saying black people have no history mm. before coming to America, that there was no history before our time in America. And then um, the other violence, which is like a milder violence, which is that, you know, there's a history there, but that history isn't relevant to you because there's there, you have no connection to that. Mm. Um, and that um, when we're talking about black history, we're talking about um, our historical experiences in this country. And we highlight specifically ways in which we're able to assimilate into the dominant culture. So racism is like sort of taught to us as, you know, this um, misunderstanding and that black people, as we, you know, rise above this misunderstanding and are able to assimilate into white culture, that is black history. You know, that is our history in this country. Um, and the reality is that that's not how culture works. So, you know, culture, worldview, um, identity, these are things that are very complex um, uh, ideas. And they're very much uh, reflective of how we literally shape the universe around us, how we shape the world around us, how we build out um, the world around us and how that works. Um, And you have people who are being brought over who have these very deep philosophical, um, there's all these deep philosophical underpinnings to how they literally um, organize the universe um, in which they live they're being brought to another country by force, but that worldview isn't, isn't being obliterated. You know, that worldview is still persisting and it's being, you know, taught to their children. What's being lost is the context. Mm. So you end up having people who have a cultural identity, which carries over from the continent, but we, what we're actually losing is the context we're losing, um, you know, why we do these things that we do that are rooted in these, you know, African contexts. And I think being in Nigeria and having that experience as both insider and outsider really sort of solidified that. You know, Sylvia Arden Boone, who is a writer who wrote about her time amongst Mende women in uh, Sierra Leone, talks about that a lot. She speaks about this idea of womanhood and beauty. Um, and she understands it and is able to interpret it because of her experience as a black woman. And there are these experiences in which you can have as a black person living in America, which allow you to understand where that comes from. Um, and I think um, there's like this sort of yearning to like sort of have this place or this um, understanding of how you fit into a world that's bigger than you, or also to, to think about where you're rooted in history um, that a lot of black folks are yearning for because the more, you know, especially the more we realize that this assimilation into a white dominated society is not working or is not going to happen. Yeah. It's not possible. Um, yeah. Not possible. Um, but, um, another part is that those connections, like I said before, they still exist. So, um, a lot of writers will talk about this. They talk about like this idea of like, Oh, my grandmother dreamt of fish. That means somebody's pregnant. 
And then they talk about this idea of fish and water being the space of um, fertility and fecundity and these water spirits being associated with fertility and, and children and childbirth and this connection with um, water in the womb that is in the praise songs, it's in the liturgy of like um, goddesses such as uh, Ashun and Yamaja and um, Iramili and uh, even Sunday, uh, which is, um, you know, the secret society amongst the Mende women that Sylvia Ardenboom was talking about, or things like even getting your hair braided. So like thinking about like um, the situations and circumstances in which you're getting your hair done in an Afro-American context and then looking at that in an African context and then talking about like the relationship that's built and the trust that's built between somebody who you're trusting to put their hands in your hair. Mm-hmm. Even talking and discussing that that she talks about or even like um, this idea of a shared experience between, you know, me as, you know, a young man and getting my hair braided or like if you're, you're like young and you're getting your hair braided by a friend or somebody in that relationship that you have with them and knowing that that experience is also shared with other people through across time. You see a cave painting from, you know, the Sahara with a woman nursing a baby who has that same hairstyle that your sister had or that you had, mm. you know, the cultural connection that exists. And like, you might say, oh, well, that's just hair, but is it just hair? When we think about what hair means to us as black people, what hair continues to mean to people in across the diaspora, what hair has meant to people and has symbolized in pre-colonial African context. And you realize that th- this is something, this is a, a piece of culture and important worldview, you know, that's being carried off, right. that's being carried out with us. Like thinking about if I have my hair done, if my hair is laid, if my head, hair is together, my life is together. That's showing <laughs> that I have to stand over my own life, that I have my shit together, you know, that I have my, I'm, able to, I'm able to actively have control over my life and also um, impact like my community in a meaningful way. And then you hear Sylvia Arden Boone write about that. You also hear like about what Ori means um, in a Yoruba context in terms of like one's destiny and one's head and one's true self. And then also um, looking at like what like this, this importance of hair braiding means and this idea of being unbraided as being the same as being mad, being mm. Like, mm. like, then you understand like, okay, this thing that is important to me that has been carried and fed to me by you know, my, my parents and my grandparents and my ancestors and all that stuff that still stays with me. And this is an important cultural connection that I downplayed because like, not only did I not understand the con- context, but we're not taught that that's an important history. We're not taught that that's an important cultural um, artifact. Um, so, you know, I think with like understanding pre-colonial African history, I sort of started from this place of, you know, like, you, you sort of start from this place, it's like, well, well, like, where are our massive monuments? Where's like, when we're talking about the history of civilization, all these things that, you know, Western society treasures and thinks is like important and relevant. Right, like the books where and, are, and, the, and the, these yeah. institutions, these Western institutions, stuff like that. Yeah. Like, where are our things? But then you start to like, think about like, okay, what are we considering important? You know, what are these elements of what makes me who I am? You know, that's not part of this white supremacist like superstructure, you know, and then looking into the history of pre-colonial Africa, you see the roots of a lot of that. Um, And then you begin to like sort of reframe what culture and civilization, what all of those things means and beginning to understand myself more and to understand like these like sort of grand traditions in which we're part of, even without knowing it. So um, my interest started there, but like where it is right now is sort of like having us like sort of understand as we're, we're really thinking as black people about what does it mean to be a black person and what does it mean to imagine a world outside of white supremacy? Like these narratives are incredibly important, you know, and a lot of writers, a lot of people we love citing, you know, knew that and were exploring that. Audre Lorde was exploring that very heavily in her work in yeah. terms of like, cosmology in terms of black feminisms, you know, uh, Toni Morrison was exploring that in her work, you know, um, August Wilson was exploring that in his work, you know, so like, these are like, um, these are things that I think are really important in terms of like how 
not only so much as crafting an identity because we have an identity as black people, but understanding our identities more as black people. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though I'm dealing with imagery, the imagery that's in the past, and I have like this fascination with all this really beautiful, like pre-colonial material culture, it's also to expose people to it and to realize ways in which that manifests in our experience now, especially like as we're looking at all these different intersections of what it means to be a black person. Like that it's not like all of these myriad, like infinite manifestations of what it means to be a black person at almost every intersection. I think it's important for us to think about that because that that lives, you know, in an ancient context and in our contemporary context. For sure, for sure. Man, yo, it's been great having you on this show, man. Yes, I I love it, man. I love it. Love having when I discover um the depth of a foundation of an artist right? The depth of a foundation of, of work that I enjoy, um, one on a visceral level, but then intellectually, it can start to feed you in a different way. Like when you, when you start to hear you like express these ideas. So man, uh, uh much power to you, man. You've been, <laughs> you're an amazing guest, man. I got to bring you back on. Cause there's so many other questions I want to uh, ask you about, um, you know, your painting processes and, and all this other stuff, but uh, you know, I guess we'll have to get to that another day, man. I, I definitely got to get you back on. So, you so much, and it was great speaking to you. It was great talking to you. Like I said before, I'm a huge fan of your work. Like I love like looking at the prints that you're making. I love your printmaking process. I love like, you know, um, also looking at the visual cues that you're referencing. Um, you know, and it's like it's really great. Like I love like really beautiful, amazing like print printmaking because like there's such a like like bold and strong um a drawing praxis that exists there oh yeah like absolutely absolutely praxis which is really beautiful and it's just like it's very reminiscent of a lot of like artists that i have like so much appreciation for like um elizabeth catlett and you know um you know charles white and john biggers i see that so much in like a lot of the work that you're doing so it's like really great to you know be able to have a conversation about art with you oh for sure and and one thing that that um another reason why i resonate so much when you talk about my work is i do attempt to study like a lot of these kind of uh traditional african processes because even the way that they imagine figures in abstraction right Mm -hmm. and you see a lot of that kind of patterning a lot of that patterning um a lot of that repetition a lot of the shapes um that they use because i do think that we undervalue these traditional artists in terms of what they were able to accomplish in the, in the worldview that exists outside of the Western canon. They were mm-hmm. operating on a very high level. And, you exactly. know, we look at it and label it as primitive. It's not mm-hmm. primitive at all. <laughs> like, it's very, yeah. it's, a, it's an advanced level of thinking of, yeah. of reducing the word down to shapes, yeah. like, and that kind of thing that, that is taking place that I, that I, go out of my way to include in the work. Cause I think that's a, a separation. I think that's, as we all kind of look for something, like you said, outside of the Western um, limitations that are put on us and, and how we should respond, how we should act, what we should produce. Um, a lot of these other cultures already have an understanding and it's beautiful. And it's just something that, um, that I connect to a lot. So hearing you speak about that, this is right, right. Exactly where my work is. Yeah, I I definitely see it. And it is something like what you're saying. It's like an incredibly important thing for us to think about, you know, in terms of how people are thinking about form, how people are thinking about bodies and how people are thinking beyond, um, like thinking about how people shape the world. How do they shape the world? That's something that you're seeing a lot in that sculpture, how people organize and shape their worlds. For sure, for sure. And this is Stephen Hamilton. You can find him at the artist Stephen Hamilton on Instagram, theetonproject.com. I definitely appreciate you coming on the podcast. We got to bring you back, man. You got to be a returning guest, man. You have been awesome. Thank you so much. It's so awesome uh, speaking with you. And that's it. Another episode of Studio Noise in the bag. Big shout out to 
Stephen Hamilton for coming on the podcast, man. The work is amazing. Y'all make sure y'all go check it out. Support the man. He's Studio Noise fam now. We got to protect the fam at all times, yo. I know you're waiting so patiently as you just listen to this. You're thinking like, how can I go another week without a new episode of Studio Noise? But don't worry. Next week, we'll be back. We got an artist coming all the way from South Africa talking to y'all. Miss Layla Fanner on the podcast. I think y'all going to really enjoy her work. Uh, when we talk about it. So make sure y'all check it out. Come back. In the meantime, between time, you need something to listen to while you're in the studio. I say you go listen to Masego. Is that how you pronounce the name? Masago? Masego? <laughs> listen to the lady. Listen to the Lady Lady album. Uh, I thought it was pretty good, Joe. Give you some good Don't vibes. You Keep you pumped up while you're working in the studio. Fade away. Don't be wasting time. Just gonna save the day. We make history today. Now. You don't need another. We ain't even dating. We just dealing with each other. I said you don't need another. We ain't even dating. We just. I don't even love you. We just a little. I don't even know you, but after you been down, you been down. I said I don't even love you. Maybe just a little. I don't even know you, but loving you with them. But dropping you with them. You're driving way too fast for my good <laughs> And that ain't right See, we don't drive the same uh, And I don't wanna play with you She tell me take off your cool <laughs> Well, maybe you ain't cool enough That's right, that's right That's right, that's right We love it, we love the vibes I like I like to move when I'm in the studio. The music gets you loose, you know what I'm saying? Make you make you think of something else and, and you kind of fall into that trance. You know what I'm talking about. You know that trance you get into when you're working. Yeah. Anyway, I want to thank y'all so much for listening to Studio Noise Podcast. Please take a second wherever you're listening. And if this is what? Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you can, on Apple or something like that, why don't you go ahead and rate us, write us a review, get us pumped up in the charts so everybody can know about the noise. And you can check us out on IG at Studio Noise Podcast. Send me an email at Studio Noise Podcast at gmail.com. And you can find your boy, uh, of course, on all your social medias at J Barber Studio on all your social medias. And to all my artists out there, you know, the weather done shifted. You know what I'm saying? We counting down, winding down to the very end of this thing. 2020 about to be out of here but you know holiday season there's no better gifts than your art if you want to give somebody something that's really going to make them you know take a little bit of time get some pen and ink make a doodle form make a little small print make a you know just do something you know spread the love to people on this holiday season if anything it's just another excuse for you to make some noise <laughs> keep making that noise baby any excuse to get back in that studio like I said, it's your boy Jay Barber. This is Studio Noise. We'll see y'all next week. Peace. <laughs>